community in, in the white population in relation to racial equity, but that there's, there's also a sense of we need to get ourselves up to speed and get ourselves together and get organized at a different level and stop being so entitled to individualism. And then that creates the conditions for true uh, interconnectivity with communities of color. So that's another piece of this. Um, and just to put one more bead on that, on that particular necklace of thought, which is uh, about the difference between pluralism um, and integration, which is something that uh, there's a, uh, an African-American professor at UN, uh, <clears throat> University of North Carolina, Asheville, uh, named Dwight Mullen, who is giving a talk um, at the end of a training I was at uh, back in the winter. And he was just making this point about um, you know, uh, that just like plants in an ecosystem, right? We don't ask corn and beans and squash to melt together into one organism that share some kind of gooey pile of DNA, we ask them to be in relationship with each other. And it's the, it's the bringing diversity together and creating relationships between the diverse elements that are mutually supportive that is where the strength of whole systems thinking is. So the same thing being true with um, race and with the, that, those long dynamics of segregation in our in our in our in the United States and in North America but especially in the United States that pluralism is is a term that a lot of people use for not asking different communities to melt together into homogenous goo that's not the end state of interracial organizing but rather it's each community developing its own identity to the point where it has it really gets its own beauty and form going and then there's something to be in relationship with with the other communities right and that's not saying that white people can't live in black communities or black people can't live in white communities or anything like that it's all there's also agency of individuals in this but that as a pattern there's a certain getting together of community identity in order to have something to offer and that's one of the things that pluralism kind of refers to so i think that permaculture the permaculture movement can be a participant in that pluralistic ecology, human ecology that maybe we're seeking to help emerge. So um, I want to just speak to kind of how I got, uh, well, actually, I want to go into one really uh, beautiful illustrative story of mutual aid before trying to, de to define it um, and just tell this story and, and, and as a first really good linkage into a lot of the goals and practices that a lot of us might recognize as permaculture, um, which is what this webinar is all about, right? Is using mutual aid as an organizing strategy for permaculture. Um, and, and I'm gonna tell two stories. So the, the first one is um, I was in 2016 in, in January and February, I was down in Mexico, um, in Southern Mexico, traveling with my colleague, Justin Holt, and we, have been doing milpa farming for a long time, which um, I'm sure a lot of people studying permaculture have heard of milpa, but I'm gonna flash this book now. Uh, hopefully it can be seen. It's called Milpa from Seed to Salsa. And um, I'll, be, I'll be putting a book list together for the class too, so no need to scribble it all down, but really great book. It's part in Spanish, part in English. Um, and by reading that book, I have learned about the people that's written by and about who are um, in a town called 
uh, a village called Yuku Yoko, which is in the Mixteca, uh, which is the southern part of um, Oaxaca. And uh, sorry, sorry, the northern part of Oaxaca, southern Mexico. It's, so it's about an hour and a half north of Oaxaca City, the mountainous region up there. And they have a, a relatively intact milpa farming culture, um, which milpa is um, corn, beans, and squash, but also up to about 20 other plants grown in a, a complex long-term polyculture, also integrated into successional forest management, um, which I'll talk more about that in a second. And, um, and so we had learned about them. We, Justin and I were traveling around um, meeting uh, milpa farmers in Mexico, uh, where, where the word milpa comes from. It's a, it's a Nahuatl word, which is the Aztec language. Um, and milpa is much more than just corn, beans, and squash. It's also the succession of farming through forest ecology up to 150-year rotational cycle. And it's also a culture um, and mythology and language thing, um, big time, and uh, ritual thing. And so we're traveling around uh, meeting indigenous milpa farmers and learning from their practices and we went to visit these folks and um while so while we're there justin and i are walking with a group of people in the village and seeing different things meeting different people and we come across these two young men about my age uh who are in the middle of constructing a giant hoop house and um they have a very loud air compressor running the whole time that we're talking to them <laughs> and uh that's running their screw gun and everything and uh that they're um that they're using to construct the hoop house and we're speaking through a translator because my uh, interpreter because my spanish is not nearly good enough to talk about what we were talking about and they just were really open with us and started talking with us about what was going on they were building this hoop this hoop house to expand their uh nursery because they um, in this village of Yukoyoko, which is part of a group of about 12 interconnected villages, which turn out have a, an entire very intact mutual aid culture, um, they have a, a reforestation program initiated by the people in the village in collaboration with a nonprofit called SEDICAM, uh, C-E-D-I-C-A-M, I'll write that here, um, it's an acronym, and um, they are planting, they're, they're propagating from seed and planting 700,000 trees a year just between these 12 villages of, uh, each village has 80 to 150 people in it. And the two species of trees they're planting are one type of pine called ojote, which has a valuable nut and sap from it, um, and then, um, and is used for building houses, um, and then a type of alder, uh, which for any of you who have been studying nitrogen fixation and all that, right, alder is a non-leguminous nitrogen-fixing plant um, in the birch family that fixes nitrogen in a lot of cases more uh, effectively than a lot of legumes do. So they're planting the simple polyculture of two trees, and they're growing all the trees from seed and reforcing their landscape because their landscape was like a moonscape um, after the, the Spanish came through and force cut most of their ancestral land um, to build, to send the timber off to build ships and make charcoal and all that. Um, the, 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 there were this huge, enormous erosion gullies. We have pictures, 20 foot deep erosion gullies going through their landscape. Um, all the topsoil got washed away and these people managed to stay in their same place. They said they'd been in this place for, for 5,000 years straight, according to their 
history. Um, and so they're reforesting their landscape. Um, and that was what they were building these greenhouses for. And so we actually then walked about 200 yards away and they showed me a place that had been one of their first planting areas 27 years earlier when they started the reforestation program. It was a mix of tall pines with the alders and the understory. And there were two sites, one next to the other, one that was um, south facing limestone soil. Like you could pick up chunks of limestone, no plants except a few nopales, a few prickly pear cactuses. And then right next to it, the area they had planted trees. And I plunged my arm in, it was about eight inches, eight or nine inches of topsoil created uh, through this tree, tree planting in uh, 27 years, which is fast topsoil creation. And so then what was going to happen is they'd come along after another 15 years, harvest those trees, that whole patch, it was probably about two acres, um, and then grow milpa there for about 10 years or so, then replant trees, actually first replant prickly pear and agave there for 15 years, and then plant trees there again. So it's a long-term rotational system involving annuals, perennials and tree crops. Um, and so I was learning all this and kind of getting my mind blown and then started hearing about the economics of it. And I'm like, how are you funding this, right? Because they, they didn't have any obvious cash crops for the outside world. Um, it wasn't like they were uh, hugely tapped into the global economy that I could see, uh, but they were using plastic and metal and gasoline and things that required um, pesos. And uh, so they started telling me about their mutual aid loaning system, right? And they have this whole uh, financial sharing system, which is embedded in a whole system of other mutual aid organs that's between this network of interconnected villages. And that was a key insight for me. So I went there to learn about Milpa. And actually what I saw was them running about the most successful grassroots uh, climate resilient farming and carbon sequestration program that I've ever seen funded internally, not from external sources, but internally through pooling resources at a communal scale and at the larger than village scale, which is one of the key insights of this whole thing. Um, and something Peter and I were, were uh, talking about a lot is just how important it is to pay attention to scale. And one of the things we'll be talking about a little later with the patterns, all about uh, appropriate scales for mutual aid and cooperative living. Um, but one of the things I learned there is that that's what mutual aid, one of the characteristics of it around the world, you study it in different cultures, is that it's a special scale between, it's bigger than the village, but smaller than the nation state, right? It's big enough to have enough resources and diversity to respond to major catastrophes and, and challenges, um, but small enough to remain accountable to the members of the mutual aid society or network, right? And so here I saw this living and breathing in action in Yuku Yoko, which I, by the way, I'll spell here. There's a couple of different ways of spelling it, but, um, and that book is Milpa Seed to Salsa. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, just like the, everyone says the Inuit have all the different 40 words for snow and right people, we, we have finally differentiated language for the things that are most important to us. It turns out that in Yukuyoko and in the whole Mixteca region, they have mutual aid is so important that they have multiple words for the different organs of mutual aid, 
right? So I'm gonna write some of them here. There's Geza, which is the kind of the name for the whole system. There's Takio, which is the voluntary community service for big projects. Um, so like building large buildings, creating irrigation systems, and so on. There's the Mayordomia, which is a really interesting one because this is the, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wealth redistribution slash ritual, ritual system whereby people who are generally elders in the village accumulate resources sometimes for up to 20 years in order to be able to fund the whole ritual cycle for a year in the villages which actively then redistributes all the wealth they've accumulated over 20 years keeping the village ritual life going including youth initiations and then um paying all that money into these into other people to do all the stuff for the giant parties and everything uh and buying kind of a sense of respect for these elders who now financially flattened themselves right which they can now do because they feel like oh i'm going to be taken care of and then another one another organ of their mutual aid is gazona which is communal farming right and this is a thing um like with the with the cherokee with the anigaduagi here they have a word called gaduki which is uh the their word for um, it's mutual aid societies that started out with farming um, and around the world you go all over the place and see that in the Emilia Romagna region in Italy in Mondragon in Spain through Africa all different societies all through the Americas farming and land care is generally at the core of mutual aid activities it starts out with that rhythm of farming and communal eating and then that organizes out into settlement patterns and management of forests for firewood and so on and so on and so on. And then the collaboration that starts with farming and food and settlement layout extends then into all things that we call economic now and into emergency response, um, into healing and healthcare, into adopting children who are orphaned. All those things extend out from the kind of origin point of um, communal land care. Um, so that's a really interesting pattern and just a direct tie-in has been a really amazing corroboration for me in studying all of this that permaculture, right? So much about land, our connection with the land. Well, mutual aid is right there at the heart of that in indigenous cultures. Um, I just want to stop there for a moment and see if anyone wants to type in or speak up any questions. <laughs> I think you automatically unmuted us.
can you put every I put every oh. You're muted too, Peter. <laughs> All right. If you have a question and you want to speak, put uh put your name in the chat or pose a question and I'll make sure that you have the microphone, so to speak. Okay, uh, calling on Bob Randall. Um, hi, uh, I think it's really neat what you're talking about. Um, it, um, I'm an anthropologist by trade and I spent some time on an island in southern philippines many years ago and they had something somewhat reminiscent of what you're talking about and one of the things that very interesting about that group was that most of them didn't just know each other and work with each other but they their parents knew each other and their grandparents knew each other and many times they were actually related to each other mm -hmm various generations back which is to say that most of them have been on that land for a long time yeah and uh so one of the challenges which i i mean i was an amazing system uh if you wanted something you just asked for it and you we don't hardly even have a word for you know we borrow something you know from somebody but we you don't just go ask for it, you know, in English. Yeah. And uh, anyway, they all did that. So I guess what I'm kind of saying is that the challenge would be to just duplicate that with people who haven't um, developed that trust over really generations. Yeah. That, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Bob. That's right. That's exactly right. And trust, I think of trust like topsoil, right? Trust is something that can easily be washed away, especially at a cultural scale. And then it takes a long time to reaccumulate. And so going with that, with that biological, you know, uh, teacher of topsoil, then how do you regrow topsoil? And so that's a lot of the question is, is for me is in contemporary mutual aid organizing, um, what is the sequence? What is, how do we consider succession? And what are the first steps? What are the nitrogen fixers in terms of mutual aid, right? What are the things that get us working together, um, you know, and start to put us in conditions where we can test the edges of our trust and have positive experiences that invite deeper levels of collaboration, right? And so um, I would say, and I was gonna speak to this later, but maybe now because of your point, I'll, I'll say it now that um, in my opinion, uh, the fact that <clears throat> finances are a 
closely guarded intimate secret in especially um, white society in the US is not, in my opinion, a, um, <clears throat> a coincidence. And it's because we live in, in, in an exploitive economy that relies on a certain amount of um, compartmentalization of awareness of what, how unequal the resources are to keep the thing going, right? And that, so financial transparency and financial collaboration, in my opinion, is one of the things that we can start testing ourselves with. And there's uh, one technique called a savings pool, which is being done now in New Zealand and was started up in that form uh, by the permaculture um, community, people in the permaculture community, especially <clears throat> Brian Innes, I'll put his name in, um, and the Living Economies Trust. And we're gonna go deeper into savings pools um, in one of the future uh, webinar sessions. So I'm not gonna go too much into the details now, uh, but just to say that there's small groups of, 50, of 15 to 25 people who are each putting in a savings amount into a circle each month um, into a shared account. Each person's money is individually tracked and can be withdrawn at any time, as long as that person doesn't owe money to the group. And then it's a proposal driven system where say then that I want to um, start a, an acorn uh, nut business like my friends here in Asheville have, and I need a $15,000 piece of equipment. I put a proposal into my savings pool, telling them all about it and giving the business plan and how I think it's going to work in my life. And they act kind of like a peer mentoring group and ask lots of hard questions and how am I going to organize my life to make that work and how am I going to repay the loan and so on and so forth. And then if they're satisfied, they grant the loan and it's a 0% interest loan, right? And then I pay that back over time into the pool as well as what's called a reciprocity payment, which is additional money that is not interest because it's still owned by me once I finish paying the loan. But it's a way of incentivizing more savings to continue increasing the principle of the pool. Um, and so this is a modern take on something that's been going on in indigenous cultures and marginalized people's cultures all over the place forever since money has existed, right? Um, and uh, you probably studied that as an anthropologist too. And this is a this is we're working starting one right now um, at Earth Even, and this is uh, an example of one of these things that I think has a lot of function. Right, this is one of the characteristics of early stage mutual aid culture development is it has a lot of function right now. In other words, it's making our lives easier and or better right now. And it sets us up for greater intimacy and trust, which can lead to all kinds of other things, just like growing outwards from the controlled front of communal farming, as, this, as I was describing with the Gadugi and other indigenous mutual aid that arises from communal farming. Right. So, right. So how do we start? Where do we start? How do we not push ourselves too far too fast and create things that actually damage trust? Right. And then the other principle I would say in there is where do we already have high trust? And how can we go to those relationships and ask more of them? Right. What if I had to write down the 20 people in my life? who I trust the most and wish I spent more time with, what if I write down those 20 people 
and invite them to be in a savings pool with me, right? And start there at that trusting level, working outwards from the controlled front of existing relationships rather than trying to force things with strangers or with uh, people who it's too intimate for, right? So those are a few thoughts on that. And that's a big question in all of this. Where do we start in knowing that we are a very fragmented society? We don't have those long-term um, intergenerational family networks that act as the basis for mutual aid and traditional cultures. So what do we do now, right? Um, so I'm going to keep on trucking here. Um, and I've been avoiding trying to define mutual aid uh, because the, the best way of to talk about it is that mutual aid is not a thing. It's more like at the family or order level of classification, right, in plants. It's not a species. It's not a genus. It's more like a family order level thing. There are some certain patterns to it. Um, and flower structures, right? But um, there are hundreds and thousands of different species within it. And those species have different characteristics because they're adapted to different circumstances, ecological circumstances, cultural, political, economic, right? Biocultural realities. Um, and so, but there's a constellation of things that, that, the, the cultural economic um, features that we're calling mutual aid tend to have in common. And some of those things are meeting daily needs of the, the participants in the mutual aid network, responding to emergencies, um, grassroots cooperative financing, like the example with Yuku Yoko um, or with savings pools, um, education, right? So this is, you can, you can just start to feel already, this is right in here with permaculture, right? Right in here with permaculture, but it has some other dimensions too, or that at least have not been emphasized so much in the actual way the permaculture movement has grown. Um, long-term relationships, right? So mutual aid tends to be focused on long-term relationships. Um, and Going along with that is relational economics as opposed to transactional economics. It's an important concept that I'll go ahead and flash another book here. Uh, Charles Eisenstein in this book, Sacred Economics, goes really deep in on this and, and how transactional economics is the mode of operation in the capitalist economy because what capitalism, industrial capitalism wants is no accountability. It wants to be able for something to be paid for. And then if one party loses, there's no accountability. And that's how extreme profits and extreme wealth disparities emerge. In a relational economy, there's a whole nest of consequences that come with any economic interaction. Hopefully they're positive consequences. And if they aren't, then that means that there is accountability for whoever took advantage. So relational economics creates accountability and asks for economic, every economic transaction to be creating deeper relationships. And if it's not, there are consequences for that not happening, negative consequences. So it reinforces accountability. Another 
common feature of mutual aid is healthcare and uh, care for the sick and dying, right? Funeral care um, is a, was one of the main uh, activities of a lot of mutual aid societies in the United States uh, from like the 1850s to the 1930s. Um, political organizing, right? Um, and I'll go ahead and mention this book here. Um, Democratic Renewal and Mutual Aid Legacy of U.S. Mexicans, right? And this is uh, just published, I think, in 2007 or 2008, something like that. Uh, 2014, even more recently. So it's uh, pretty new. And it's about how, and this is really, really interesting um, and instructive, mutual aid as a cultural institution or cultural organ of communities is what has provided the ability to do really sophisticated political organizing, right? People, we start taking care of each other in our daily lives and providing health care and food and child care and funeral care and having loan funds. And suddenly we are in better shape as a community. We have more reserves and resources and we're less stressed out. And we have existing long-term networks and long-term relationships and trust and all of that acts as a profound matrix out of which really powerful political movements can arise. And that's true with the civil rights movement in the US. Um, the civil rights movement um, largely emerged out of two African-American institutions, churches and African-American mutual aid societies. Um, and I want to mention this book now, uh, which is Collective Courage by um, Dr. Jessica Gordon Nemhard. Um, she's up in New York. She was between uh, New York City and Washington, D.C. She uh, straddles those two places and teaches up at um, New York State University. Um, and this is a history of African-American cooperative economic thought and practice. We actually were privileged or honored to have uh, her come down and be part of the Western North Carolina Mutual Aid Summit that we had here three weeks ago. And she's an amazing repository of knowledge. And, and she was just really sharing with us how all of that shaped up and you know there were there were hundreds of african-american mutual aid societies um coming right out of when slavery was abolished you know because what happened when slavery was abolished is that um institutionalized racism was just kept going through different means still is right um and uh, largely the prison industrial complex now but back then it was what we called jim crow and it was a set of policies cultural norms, um, laws, um, informal uh, behaviors that kept institutional racism going. And so one of the artifacts of that was that banks, which were run by white supremacists, would not loan money to African-Americans. So they couldn't, then African-Americans couldn't buy homes, couldn't buy land, couldn't do anything they needed to. So they started pooling money. They created mutual aid societies and they used those to fund the establishment of um, their own hospitals schools, leadership training, they bought land for farms, they bought blocks of houses in cities, um, developed whole educational programs. Um, and that went for a long time up until it really petered out um, around the around World War II, um, and for a variety of historical reasons. But part of that is that um, the mutual aid society movement morphed into the cooperative economic movement, cooperative business movement, 
part of it is that there is a systematic campaign to put mutual aid societies out of business because they were too powerful. For instance, mutual aid societies had their own hospitals and had negotiating power with doctors unions. There were entire doctors unions that were just servicing mutual aid hospitals. And so they were able to negotiate lower rates, more affordable rates with the doctors. And so private doctors unions got together and influenced state legislatures and got laws passed to, to create really expensive building codes for hospitals to put mutual aid hospitals out of business and keep private hospitals in business. And it was successful in a lot of ways, right? And so games like that have been played too. And that's part of what we need to be designing for is anticipating that stuff. Okay, and cycling back to, um, we were doing kind of the constellation of, of mutual aid characteristics. Um, and just to rehearse them again, daily needs, emergency response, grassroots cooperative financing, education, long-term relationships, healthcare, political organizing, life cycle support from childcare all the way to funeral services. Um, and mentorship and leadership development. And finally, farming and land care. So these are some of the ways that you identify a mutual aid um, society or a mutual aid organism or when it starts to have some of these characteristics. So then bringing that a little more deliberately um, into the permaculture movement. And then I want to take a moment for some, for like a little self-reflection um, exercise. Um, so uh, to, to, for this, I want to tell another short story, which is um, in, in 2017, um, I have been working as a permaculture consultant and educator for um, a bunch of years, uh, not as many as Peter, but a, a bunch of years. And, um, and, uh, and I, but I was, I was, you know, this is 2017, Donald Trump had just gotten, um, instated and I was in a lot of despair actually. And, um, basically feeling, uh, like this sense of futility and I've been working so hard along all my sisters and brothers to try to make some real transformation, you know, happen. And, it's not adding up. And here we are just heading into the maw of climate chaos. And here we are with wealth inequality, even worse, and on and on and on and on. We know the litany, right? And I was feeling, I was feeling despair. And, um, and I was saying, whoo, there has to be some kind of uh, feedback, way to take feedback here and learn and go deeper and find the path. There's, there has to be a healing path. There have to be healing pathways. And so one of the things I did is, you know, one of the things I try to do whenever I'm facing what seems like an intractable challenge is get feedback. So I put out, um, I, I reached out to all of the hundreds of people I'd done permaculture consultation for and asked them, how are your projects going? Um, and uh, out of the people who responded, less than half of them still lived on the properties they had paid me to consult with them on less than half of them. And there were all these reasons, marriages split up, people died, 
um, people lost, uh, lost the ability to pay the mortgage. Um, they had to move to take care of sick parents in another state. Their kids had gotten older, so they had moved into town to go to a certain school. It's like all these different human reasons, right? But the overall theme and message that I, um, that I received from that was that people were living basically in constant emergency mode was what, what, I, what I was hearing is that everyone was, was living these isolated, fragmented lives where basic needs are barely being met. And even if the basic needs are being met, the social relational environment is full of trauma and, you know, ancestral grief and current trauma happening and lack of communication and relational skills and and it's just, it's a hard situation out there. And there's everyone, there's kind of this facade that everyone's keeping up as if this is normal and everything is fine. But actually what's happening is that things are crumbling and falling apart all over the place, including in permaculture projects, these things, these land projects that are mostly nuclear families, 95% of the people I, I've worked with are nuclear families living on a piece of land by themselves doing kind of this homesteading thing. And that's the form that permaculture has taken in white society in the United States. And so that was a big, sh that was a shocker for me, you know? And, and I said, wow, that was a bunch of years of my life that I put into trying to help get things going when there wasn't the cultural topsoil, there wasn't the relational or trust topsoil to actually support that kind of land project. And yes, it's important for us to grow our own food and build our own buildings, have our own energy systems and be carbon negative and um, all that and save seeds. But if we don't have the basic support systems to keep ourselves alive, those things are just going to collapse. We're going to waste huge amounts of resources on things that aren't going anywhere, right? Um, and the whole idea of permaculture systems is setting up these intergenerational systems that sometimes are I'm designing for a 150-year land use cycle with forestry and everything and that takes intergenerational people with intergenerational knowledge transfer to even carry that kind of thing out and that's not happening and so that was a big part of of like saying okay i think that we've missed some some of the most important invisible structures even though we talk about invisible structures in permaculture design courses that we haven't really taken it seriously and we haven't gone really deep with the cultural and economic pieces in permaculture. And then, and that's then right then I was starting to do a lot more reading about mutual aid and, um, and then had gone and gone and seen Yukuyoko in Mexico and it started to come together. I said, Oh, there's actually this old pattern. There's this old cultural economic organ that has been present in all traditional cultures and is still present in mostly marginalized people right here in our own communities that most white people are not paying attention to. And by the way, I'm, I'm using white and an hour as if everyone on this call is white, which I don't, I don't know, but all the faces I see right now are white. Um, and, um, and white society has not adopted that. In fact, it's not even in our language. 
you know, it's not even, it's not even in our vocabulary, our emotional vocabulary or our intellectual vocabulary. Um, and it's this thing that has been a main organizing principle of all traditional cultures. <laughs> so how do we expect to have a successful permaculture movement without something like that? Um, so that's, that's where I, I, I kind of brought those streams together and, and a lot of things started to click. And then I started asking better questions and started finding better resources. And, and since then have just been, um, have just been astounded by how much practice and history uh, there is around this. It's vast and huge and ancient and, and rich. And there's um, so much to learn, uh, both uh, written and um, living in living human communities. Um, so I want to I want to pause there for a second and do a little self reflection. It's eight fifty four right now, so we have thirty five minutes left in our um, session, and I want to invite um, give us two minutes for for everyone on this call to reflect on this question: What are the most powerful ways that I already receive mutual aid in my daily life? That's that's one one question. <clears throat> what another one is what are the most powerful ways I receive mutual aid in my work or projects as, as contrasted with daily life and then finally what are the glaring gaps in the social support systems in my life and this is going to be a kind of a thread of self-reflection that we continue throughout the four sessions um, to look at starting to implement some of these ideas in, um, in our own lives and projects. So this is just the, the little um, starting place, the little seed of that, um, of that exploration. And so I'll give two minutes um, starting now. I invite you to write about it.
Okay. Um, so, um, first, maybe take a couple people's reflections on the most powerful ways you already receive mutual aid. Are we supposed to write them? Um, good question. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe because of the trickiness of the mics and everything, some people are on phones and not on computers. How about write them? Yes. My suggestion, if you want to take one person at a time, is to have them speak to the group. So, because not every if people are only calling in, I don't think anyone is. I think everyone's on the Zoom, so they should have the chat channel. So work typing might work if people address everyone. Right. Do it. But we could take individuals and have them speak if you like. Yeah, it'd be great to hear some other people's voices besides mine. Corrine, do you have yeah. response? I'd love to hear it. Yeah, and I think that you know, having the land, you know, having this farm has allowed me to create more of a network of mutual aid between me and other farmers who are doing similar things, um, between me and um, you know, people who want to learn how to farm, like the Woofing Network. I've made friends. We we continue to help each other. Uh, they're off on their farm now, but they learned while they were here. They helped me establish systems. Um, you know, and then people help me finance the farm as well. And I, I'm getting a lot of ideas listening to this of how to increase that organizational structure to make it more robust. It's it's been pretty informal, not fully thought out. I've already got a lot of ideas from the little list that you gave of how it could be formalized and made more powerful and more stable. Uh, so yeah, it's my two cents. <laughs> Bob, that's great. I see you'd like to speak. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I haven't heard from some other people, but um, well, here in a big city over 40 years now, uh, I, I'm in a whole bunch of different groups, and they're, they're not all they're not one group doing all those things. They're actually groups doing different parts of those things, but they're not. Uh, certainly not as ever as robust as they could be, but I mean, professionally, we, uh, I helped start an organization here that that's, does enormous amounts of stuff and certainly supports me and supports a lot of other people, both income and, and uh, services of various sorts, uh, from school gardens to farmers markets to adult classes to 
fruit tree sales and on and on and on. And, but you know, it's a, it's an organization that's developed into pr a pretty big thing at this point. And uh, I'm in another group that's an organization of professional green businesses that are basically an educational effort uh, to help people who are in essentially involved with uh, planting businesses in the Houston area um, do things in an organic, earth-friendly way. And um, I'm in a political group as a bunch of activists that just share what they're doing and what they think about what they're doing and give each other advice. And family and neighbors is another bunch here. And uh, of course, I'm also in Pina. So I see that as a group also. That's, that's about it. But uh, it, I, it would be great if there was an organization that did all of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? Okay, let's hear about some gaps. Where do folks experience the most um, glaring gaps in your social support systems? Well, I'll go again. Um, I think, you know, I see a lot of people not being able to execute really awesome projects because of finances. And that's, I know that's common all over the place. And it's very frustrating. Um, I've hit up against that wall, especially working in indigenous communities. Um, you know, it's, it's a huge barrier that would be great to crack. <laughs> in, in our experience, and we're a bit in a post-traumatic condition, having been yanked out of a set of, a couple of sets of fairly well-developed mutuality, you know, matrices of mutuality, one in one at Earth Haven, uh, you know, 10 years ago, and then more recently in Southern Indiana. Uh, we are grateful to have been transplanted into a small town in Michigan where we have uh, landed amidst a strong set of relational supports. People bring us food. They give us straw bales. They uh, lend us track, uh, big trucks when we need them. Um, you know, and we try to give back. And it's almost, um, as you read about sometimes in stories, it's a case of, no, 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 let me, no, 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 let me, you know, and people are, uh, no, you can't pay me for that. Uh, give me, the, uh, you know, and then you, it becomes an art to try to guess what people will accept to nurture the bonds of obligation. But I still find that one of the things I miss out of my North Carolina networks is there I was amidst a large group of people who were very well versed in the uh, healing arts. So uh, knowledge about alternative medicine and healthcare was widespread and freely shared in the group I was with and practices. And here there's much, much less of that. And now of course I'm older and perhaps in as much need or more 
as ever. So that's a glaring gap for me. And as a consequence of also of aging, we haven't the sort of, you know, spit and fire to jump up and go work 10 hours a day. And yet we're farming. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm working on these things, but those are, those are some of the gaps. Can say you. something? Hey, um, I, hi. I think that for most people, especially in a North American culture, that the gaps are more common than people actually feeling like they have mutual aid in their life. Um, I'm very involved in a lot of communities and I still feel like personally I'm lacking in a lot of the mutual aid I'd like to feel. Um, and I hear this from all of the permaculture networks that I'm part of, you know, just knowing who's down the road doing what, what resources to share, what information. And um, The organization I work with, the Abundant Earth Foundation, has started a social networking platform to try to close some of these gaps and uh, just so that we can share what are our wants and needs and offerings and what information are we looking for and to try to to be more resilient so that then when disaster strikes we're able to help each other more um, and that's called weavernetwork.org and it's been a it's been actually really hard getting buy-in and, and participation from the permaculture community. A lot harder than I was expecting. Um, we've tried to meet all of the needs that people have asked for and yet still not there. So I'm, I'm still tending the soil and planting the pioneer trees and hoping that this food forest will take off because I think people, even if they don't, they may not even realize what support networks are lacking in their life because they've never had them in their culture. And so um, I hope to tear down some of those silos and, and bring us together so, so that we can all feel more mutually supported. And I think that would deal with a lot of the social problems and depression and everything that people are facing. Not everybody's facing it, but that many people are. So, so thanks. Thank you. Yeah, great. Well, thank you all for the, those bits and everyone who didn't get to respond. I encourage you to at least start a few pages in a notebook where you can kind of keep running notes along these lines as we do different little um, participatory exercises through the sessions. And hopefully that'll accumulate into some insights by the time that we're done about your projects. Um, and yeah, I wanted to respond and then lift off from a few of those things that were said. And we have uh, 20 more minutes in our session. Um, and so um, first of all, just framing what we just did, kind of identifying strengths and weaknesses. Um, and uh, one, of the, one of the things that, that I've been working on with a group of organizers um, is a pattern language for mutual aid. Um, and probably a lot of you are familiar with pattern language, which is uh, you know, very common. We use and refer to in permaculture circles a lot, and there are lots of different pattern languages for different things. Um, there's this book is a really interesting book, Liberating Voices, Pattern Language for a Communications Revolution. It's cool on its own. It's a pattern language for basically media and education, 
But all, on a meta level, what Doug Schuler, the author of this, does is he lays out how you write a pattern language for something, whether it's for building jet engines or for permaculture or computer programming or mutual aid. And not only for doing it, but doing it collaboratively. And so we're working on a collaborative pattern language is basically getting the, the essence of the um, best practices or the seeds, the DNA, the cultural DNA of mutual aid practices into a coherent language that makes it easier for those of us who are organizing to design mutual aid that's appropriate for each setting and people in place. Um, and so one of those patterns that, that, that I've articulated, I'm going to share a document with you all now actually, um, that is, um, has five of these patterns in it. Um, I'm going to put the link here. It's kind of messy, but uh, it's a Google Doc. And um, one of these patterns is work from our strengths at our weaknesses, right? And it goes a little bit more into it in the document. But the point, it's kind of like needs and yields, right? In permaculture, so but but the key there is to work starting at the strengths. And another term I want to throw out now is asset-based community development, um, or ABCD. Um, and there's the ABCD Institute in Chicago, which does trainings. And asset-based community development is a um, it's a unique form of uh, community organizing that is based in a type of asset mapping, um, but that's a lot different than some types of kind of corporate and business asset mapping. The idea is that, first of all, you focus on the assets in a community rather than the deficiencies, right? And that is a fundamentally different spirit to the thing rather than going, for instance, they do stuff in you know extremely poor <clears throat> neighborhoods in Southside Chicago, rather than going into neighborhood and saying, what are the deficiencies is the first thing they say, what are the strengths, the assets in this community? Who are the elders? What are the skills that people are using, even if they're maybe not in ways that are serving them? What are the public spaces that are being underutilized, but that are assets, et cetera, et cetera. And then, yes, you need, they pay attention to them. What are the weak links, right? In the terms of like holistic resource management from Alan Savory, what are the weak links in the system? And then the, the creative question become, becomes, how do we use our strengths, our assets specifically to address the weak links, right? So it becomes a really good way of framing that design challenge for your specific community. So that's one thing of ABCD, but the other thing is that it's, it's relational. So that, that asset-based community development is based on um, interviewing. It's a series of one-on-one -on -one interviews. Everybody hearing me all right still? Good thumbs up. Okay. Series of one-on-one -on -one interviews where people in a community interview each other, get trained a little bit, create the right questions, and interview each other to learn more deeply about what each other know, because a lot of times we can work alongside people every day and not know what they know, whether that's other people who are doing cool stuff or certain resources or whatever. But if you ask the right questions in an hour and a half interview, a lot can come out. And then say that I'm, I'm an interviewer, I work through my community, 
I talk to one person, they tell me five other people to talk to. I go talk to those five people and it branches outwards to a network of relationships so that at the end of a defined process, not only is there a lot more information known, but the relationships are strengthened. And so you've actually got more capacity and more trust to then do whatever the thing is that gets discovered that needs to be done through that process, right? So the two big things about ABCD are relationship strengthening through information gathering, right? And a focus on assets uh, before a focus on deficiencies. Um, so that's a really powerful tool, I think. And the people from the ABCD Institute were working on getting them down here to do a training for our organizers down here because um, they do trainings in Chicago, but if you can get them to come for a few thousand dollars to where you are, then you can get 25 people trained rather than send two people for $3,000 with airfare and all. Um, so that's a really good tool, I think, to have in our, in our collective toolkit. Um, I also wanted to speak to Corrine's point about use the term formalization, and I think that's right on. Um, that's a characteristic of mutual aid uh, organizing that I've seen uh, in every instance that I've read about and um, encountered in real life is people formalize, often ritualize our commitment to each other and to a shared reality and support system. Rather than it being kind of loose, like so many things are in this fragmented modern society, we make it real, we put some glue in and make some agreements um, and ritualize it. It doesn't have to be too somber or whatever, it can be celebratory, but but we commit to things and hold each other accountable. And that's what's required. That's one of the things that's required for trust, right, is accountability. And so formalizing is an important ingredient. Um, and then um, Bob mentioned about cooperative or professional green, the Professional Green Business Association. I, I wanna say, and this will be a teaser for another session, that the connection of mutual aid organizing to cooperative business development is a very strong and important connection um, in one of the communities that we're working with here um, that the Latin American community, they uh, essentially did an, an asset-based community development process. They called it participatory action research, PAR, which is a whole other thing, but very similar. Um, and then they discovered the strengths and needs in their community and then they created an, a nonprofit. Um, they created uh, a cultural preservation organization that's keeping indigenous languages and ceremonies from their peoples from Mexico and Central America alive. Um, and then they started hatching out cooperative businesses from the strongest capacities of their members to meet their deepest needs, just like we were just saying, right? So they have a, they have a, um, Spanish English language interpretation and translation co-op with 10 worker owners um, that allows their community members to interface with English speaking society and now is getting paid like by us to come do translation at the mutual aid summit that we had so that Spanish speaking people can come, right? They hatched out a child care cooperative because a lot of them needed child care and they wanted it to be high quality and they wanted it to be in Spanish and English. So they made their own child care cooperative that's in the house of one of the um, members of the community. Um, and they've created about um, six businesses total, I believe. So they all just hatch out of what their capacities were and what they needed, right? So cooperative business development, I think of that like 
cooperative businesses are the trees and shrubs that grow in the topsoil that mutually makes because they first had a tight community of mutual support and they're taking care of each other and dealing with immigration and legal issues and uh, making sure no one's starved and no one's out on the street in the cold, you know, and then that creates that security and trust that then enhances the capacity to develop cooperative businesses. Oh, an important thing, they also have savings circles, which are kind of like savings pools. It's a similar cooperative financing mechanism that they're now using. They've formed five different housing cooperatives um, and have um, and have these resident-owned uh, mobile home communities. They're trailer parks that they own cooperatively and now have equity in rather than just renting. Um, and so they finance that uh, largely through these savings circles, a cooperative financing mechanism. So you see how this mutual aid kind of matrix creates that topsoil to then grow different enterprises out of, including cooperative businesses. And then the cooperative businesses feed back into the community and are accountable to the community, as well as employing people there and bringing in resources from the outside. <laughs> um, so, um, I want to go explicitly to Pina now and the connection with um, permaculture organizing and the permaculture movement. Uh, but, but in order to do that, I want to just speak briefly to the organization that we've started co called Cooperate WNC. Um, and so that this is uh, uh, only was incorporated last year and got our nonprofit status in April of this year. So it's very new, but also a lot's been happening. Um, and uh, we got funded from a private donor for me to be working full time and my partner Courtney to be working part time on it and working on increasing that staff number. But even having that much has allowed us to really move things, you know, in, in um, 11 months. And um, the vision of this is a regional scale mutual aid network, right? Um, for a bunch of different reasons, which we can go into perhaps later if people are interested. I've, my belief is that regional scale is the sweet spot for a lot of us to be working at right now in terms of mutual aid networks um, because you can get up to the scale necessary to deal with the pressures and demands of modern, the modern economic reality, which I you know, hate in a lot of ways, but here we are. For instance, with healthcare, um, a healthcare cooperative uh, which is like a healthcare cooperative is, is a thing that is done in other countries and very little in the U.S. There are a few examples, but healthcare cooperative as an alternative to a private health insurance company. So a healthcare cooperative is something that has enough financial clout to pay for people's emergencies and cancer care and everything and to negotiate with hospitals and pharmaceutical companies and doctors as well as providing uh, preventative and alternative healthcare that's the kind of healthcare co-op we're, talk we're talking about. Those seem like they need about 10,000 members to make something like that work, right? That's about the scale that's necessary. So that starts to be a regional scale to get that many people participating anytime soon, right? Um, and so then once you have that, then our vision is using things like a regional healthcare co-op and some other functions, including a, a regional carbon credit initiative um, and, and other things to support a network of physical community centers throughout Western North Carolina, in this case, which is a 18 to 23 county area, depending on how you define it, 
and these physical community centers, which act kind of like as hubs, um, are places where lots of human needs are met, where there might be a healthcare clinic, childcare happening during the day, food distribution from farmers right around there, educational events happening, each health, each mutual uh, aid hub formed and owned and operated by people who live right around it, right? So it's Cooperate WC isn't trying to micromanage all that. What we are is we're the mycorrhizae, right? So that's the kind of biological metaphor we've discovered for instructing what we're doing, which is the mycorrhizae, the fungi who connect the trees and plants, uh, which are each a community center or an organization um, or a community together and help do resource sharing, knowledge sharing and relationship enhancement, right? So that's what our mutual aid network is doing. It's not trying to run those community centers, but rather kind of find the people who are already um, organized, who already have some little community initiative going and help remove the barriers and enhance the strengths through cooperative financing, through knowledge sharing, through hooking people up in different local communities with each other to help each other out. Um, and so that seems like, it seems like a really strong place to, to organize from that scale. And, you know, I think what got Peter, I'll speak for myself, but what got me excited about doing this webinar is that with the Pina vision of, of um, regional hubs that act as permaculture mentoring and accreditation sites, um, you know, like we tried to get, we tried to get one of these hubs going, we started to have meetings uh, 18 months or two years ago, I think. And the fact is that all the permaculture professionals around here are just so busy that it just, it just floundered. And, and, and for me, that was because it didn't meet enough needs for the people involved. It didn't create the actual mutual aid in people's lives to get momentum. And so my suggestion and insight is that if we can layer in the meeting of basic needs and some of these other functions of in this constellation of things that mutual aid have traditionally done um, in with permaculture hubs, this could be a way to actually get some, some momentum going. And then those, can, those centers can be things that also have permaculture education that are also demonstration sites for agroecological farming and renewable energy and alternative building and all the systems of permaculture, um, but are, uh, are, are so um, enmeshed in our daily lives that they have that oomph that it takes to have kind of long-term staying power. Um, and so that's a, it's not a fully fleshed out thought how that would work at all, but that's one kind of the exciting experiment I think of this webinar is proposing that thought as a starting place and saying, okay, if, if, if that's a, if, if, if you all, if, if people on this call agree with that premise, what does that look like in your situation? How can we start to apply some of these principles and uh, long-term cultural patterns to, um, to our, our existing lives, communities, permaculture projects and start to kind of hatch it out from there. Um, so we have four minutes left until the end of the call. And um, I want to just suggest um, that there, you know, there are a bunch of different books here that have been referred to. I'm going to actually paste in a couple more um, websites as well. And um, my, my suggestion would be if each, if each of you could spend 30 minutes between now and the next session reading something from one of the resources that we've brought here to bring just a little glimmer of 
um, of more detail to what you're thinking about. Start there and see if you can bring that back next week and have a question related to that or a comment related to that. Um, and so try to make a kind of a reasonable um, time commitment request there. Um, and I will send out, um, hmm, Peter, is there a way I can, can create a book list to be shared with the whole group? Certainly. Um, if you will compile it, send it to me, uh, we'll send it out with the recording link, which is going to go to all okay. participants. Great. Awesome. Um, and the, and then one possible idea for that reading is in the document that I've shared here, the Google doc that has the patterns in it, especially with the first pattern in there, which is about scale and nested scales, um, crews, pods, hubs, and watershed networks. I, I invite you to really read that one and think about it in relation to your own life. Um, do I have a crew already? Do I have a pod already? Do I, am I a lucky one and have a hub already? Right, and start thinking about those scales and how you experience that and maybe haven't thought about it that way yet in your existing network of relationships. Um, because that's gonna set us up for a lot of the specific tools of mutual aid that we'll be getting into in the future sessions. So Zev, if I can yeah. interpose, the, uh, I tested the, the Google Doc link and found myself against uh, Google's gate. So it did not go directly to the Google Doc, and Hannah reported something similar. So whatever needs to be done to unlock it, we can add that link into the circulated resources. All right, maybe I'll just um, make a PDF out of it, and could that be emailed out to the, to the yes. participants? All right, that's what I'll do. Thank you. Um, yeah, and I'm going to go ahead and copying in a couple other insanely long URLs um, that are excerpts from books that talk about some of the Mexican mutual aid uh, vocabulary. Um, and in the last minute here, I just, I feel really grateful to be here and to be sharing this um, hopefully life-giving information. And thank you all for your participation. And um, if there's maybe one question I would Take it. Ah, thanks. Okay, Melanie just told me I can change the setting in the Google Doc. Yeah, all right, I'll do that. Any comments or questions at the end here? Exciting. Exciting. <laughs> This is juicy stuff. Great. Yeah. I think so. Thank you. Thank All you. right. Comment, Bob. Yeah, it's great. Um, really interesting, and uh, thank you for doing this. You're welcome. My pleasure. Well, thank you, thank you, Peter and Pina for helping make this possible. And thank you everyone for making time in your lives and um, hope to see you next time. Thank you very much. Yeah. We'll be back on Thursday next week, the 26th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific.
please join us again. The recording will be available. Anyone can still join the webinar at this point. Catch up by viewing this recording and continue. Uh, for us. Thank you. Thank, Thank you all you. very much.